Hello, Bat fans, and welcome to the trial. Yes, this is episode 62 of I Am the Knight, featuring episodes 3 of season 2 of Batman the Animated Series. With me, as always, is the boy blunderer, Adamantium Ray. Greetings. Less of a boy these days, but still oh, yes, a blunderer. Valid. Sorry. No, it's okay. It's okay. It still takes a few people to get used to, but still, that is my uh, verdict to have given. Duly and fairly, uh, we can go to sentencing, but uh, <laughs> I'm a very fair and lenient judge as opposed to some of the mm. legal antics we get in today's episode. And what an episode. Again, you, you heard me say, as soon as I saw who wrote it, written by Paul Dini and Bruce Tim, the creators, the men behind this show, and directed by Dan Reber, I knew this one's going to be interesting, but this was actually an extremely philosophical, deep and interesting episode disguised as farce, and I loved it. It was all of those themes, but it never actually made the effort to be that way. It put, presented such deep and mm. hard-hitting stuff and themes to us that we just got to unpack ourselves as viewers taking away afterwards. Um, yeah, this was a very out there and unique episode that I was astounded to see, to be perfectly honest, and was glad that I did. Well, yeah, I mean, one of the arguments made against Batman almost since his debut in the 40s, or late 30s, early 40s, was that he's as responsible for Gotham City being in the state it's in as the criminals he fights because they all rose up to challenge him. But... Paul Dini and Bruce Tim have done an amazing thing where they said, well, actually, really, a lot of these people were so unhinged to start with that with or without Batman, they probably would have ended up being slightly different versions of themselves, but themselves anyway, because they are that dangerous and that crazy. And it's hard to argue with that, even when the district attorney who was initially opposed to him over the course of the episode changed their mind to think, well, actually, no, maybe Batman's right. In summing up, yep, that is the essence of the episode. Uh, we, It's good to try and get this sort of, is Batman responsible for creating mm. his villains sort of question out every few whenevers? Because mm -hmm. it's a very interesting mm -hmm. question. And I don't think it's a question posed as often to other superheroes. But in, other, in most cases, I think it's more fitting to put that to other superheroes. Because... Of, say Superman, I don't think Lex Luthor would be quite as motivated on destruction without the existence of Superman, mm -hmm. personally. I think the very existence of the Green Lanterns creates those grand entities that feel the need to restore galactic or in, uh, interstellar balance. Mm -hmm. So there's plenty of argument for some of those heroes creating some of their villains, but they aren't as scrutinized as heavily about it as Batman is. Very well said. I mean, depending on which origin you want to believe this year, um, Superman was responsible for Lex Luthor going bald, and that's the whole reason Lex Luthor went a bit gargod start with. I mean, a bit of an extreme reaction to losing hair, but hey, some people are very attached to their follicles. But like you say, um, Batman has been under the microscope for this sort of thing forever. And who knew that a 20-minute Saturday morning show could explain the reasons why he isn't just as well, if not better than, many of the deeper, literal, even texts I've read on the subject, all the comics themselves. I thought they handled it brilliantly. I think they made it in such a way so that they didn't have the... Like, they didn't make it like this grand sweeping mm. question, like um, in, certain ask, in certain versions of this story that is Batman responsible for his villains or discourse, I hear it sort of presented as this big thing for Batman to sort of question his resolve and to, like... He feels shaken by this, but we don't get that here. We get 
just a very important. I think the reason so successful is because we get an impartial viewpoint yes. into the into the matter and into the episode in the form of this district attorney lady. Shh. My memory's good. I can promise. Um, <laughs> by, Janet Van Dorn. Janet Van Dorn. By having her be a uh, a vo- focal character, so that we can see her very hard line. Yes, Batman's a menace. Batman's created these characters into that belief being scrutinized into it maybe not being so mm-hmm. we can follow the train of thought that naturally lets us find that our own opinions on the matter are changed with alongside it it's a very satisfying way to tell a story that's about a question but taking the question out of it and making it more of a story we learn something without really feeling like we're being spoon fed it absolutely well put yeah there's nothing worse than a story that's trying to get a message across but you can feel them literally bashing you around the head with it this was done subtly through the use of woof, virtually everyone in Batman's who's who of villains. I mean, the biggest heavy hitters, Joker, Two-Face, um, Mad Hatter, Scarface and Ventriloquist, Poison Ivy, Harley Quinn. They were all there as ju- jury and executioner, if, if they were allowed to be, with, of course, um, Judge, Mr. Joker. Judge Joker presiding the event and... It was just so well handled and so entertainingly, I think, is the word we're looking for, yes. told. It wasn't um, a lesson. It wasn't a soapbox. You learned something that you probably already knew, but in a fun, fun way. If it had been done with any less fun or humour, A, it would fail to do its job as a Saturday morning cartoon, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and B, it would be guilty of a lot of things that are very similar in the in the style, like... To, to compare it to other Batman media, there's the themes that like Batman sort of centers himself around. I think examples of where that's well handled is how um, Christopher Nolan's Batman Begins handles the theme of fear and how those characters interact with it and use it compared to like the vague, abstract sort of feelings about how powerful and the influence of certain characters in um, Batman versus Superman. You, there's the real mm. sense that the theme of uncertainty and uh, guilt and complicity with the Batman feels about whether or not he's responsible for his villains mm-hmm. that it's a question that's like there throughout but we're never beaten with it yeah. and we're given a satisfying answer to it as part of the story's motion it's just we're not beaten by it senselessly so this is actually a mastery in storytelling yeah really really well told but um it's stunning that this level of villainy, I mean, like I said, a who's who of Batman's Rogues Gallery appears in this episode, but they're all handled true to character mm. by all the original voice cast. I mean, filming this episode, making this episode must have been an absolute riot if they were ever together in the same place at the same time. But even if they weren't, hearing back each other's dialogue and recording it, can you imagine what kind of craziness ensued in the recording studio for this episode. I'd like to think that they all met up in person to do this because I know with voice actors, like regular actors, being able to look across at someone to be able to read reactions and physically act makes your voice sound all the more sincere. Um, I know that from my extensive uh, tabletop role-playing game lark and time. But even so, I can count on seasoned professionals like Mark Hamrells and Kevin Conroy to be able to react in a way that feels sincere so that even if they weren't uh, sitting across the table or across the studio from their colleagues, they'd be able to give something sincere and real. I'd like to think that they were there together because we do get everyone, but it's very well handled because we got speaking parts that moved the story. Yes, We got Croc, Croc there being oh. like the heavy and moving people around. We got 
Harley Quinn just livening up Poison Ivy, moving things things along. We got Two Face there to explain things and Joker doing Joker things, but we didn't necessarily get um, much of Scarecrow or Riddler's uh, voice working. Mm. They were just there in motion, so it was good to be able to see that like their influences and their presence were felt. But their this it was probably just a way to save headaches on the producers and the yeah um, the directors' parts. But as it was, yeah, but their presence and the gravitas mm-hmm. of the characters were able to still really measure for the story going ahead. Absolutely. And I'm really glad you brought up Croc because I love it when this series shows that there is a level of continuity. I mean, I mean it's not like comic books where if you miss an issue, you're, you're absolutely scuppered, that you cannot follow the story. But the way that Croc, when everyone was saying, shoot him, lock him up, kill him, Croc says, throw yeah. a rock at him. Just like what he did in the, the... Well, no, because that was Batman who said that. It shows how well Batman knows Croc. <laughs> that when he impersonated Croc, that's exactly what he said. And brilliant, because when we then saw the episode where Croc was on the run, mm. what did he do? He threw a rock at Batman. It's little stuff like that. And it, it, it's brilliant. The whole Harley Joker thing, referencing other episodes. Um, Joker as the judge smacking the, the gavel with a rubber chicken rather than a hammer. Yep. Um, it's just levels of characterization, but the sentencing, when Mark Hamill went all porky pig, joy. They're allowed to make characters like that. And I'm glad you talked about continuity because I thought it was incredibly satisfying to see Poison Ivory referencing the fact that she tried to poison Harvey Dent back when Harvey mm-hmm. Dent was a whole man. Mm-hmm. So it's a lovely bit of respect to sort of keep that element of things through. And it just shows how far these characters have grown over the 60-plus episodes that we've seen them in so far. Yeah. Um, Which is also why I find this episode so charming and so delightful, because reasonably speaking, these characters should not want to be in the same room Mm -hmm. together, working for the same sort of deal. Absolutely. So it's a fascinating character moment to see them all on the same page as much as they could possibly be. And it's very satisfying to see that. So I'm pleasantly surprised that we got a story like this. Totally, totally. And it's very clever also because you see these characters, as you say, who should not get on at all, but that common thread is Batman. And Poison Ivy's backstory and Joker's backstory and Croc's backstory, the fact that some of that was brought up, Bad Hatter, Mm. is a brilliant way for people who may have heard about a season one coming into season two to learn about these characters' backgrounds and understand their motivations without you having to go back and watch all those episodes. It's just really, really well written. It really is. It just shows that there's the real care and attention to all of the stuff that they've made since and to all of the stuff that these characters are based on. They handle it perfectly so that we can get long, ongoing stories like this that are as unexpected and wild as they may be. Oh, yeah. I mean, wonderful lines like when Ivy's sentenced and she arrives at Arkham, Harley says, welcome home. Welcome home, Red. Yeah, because (laughs) harkening back to that one episode where they were Thelma and Louise almost and where their great connection sort of began. So, yeah, there's a real care and attention that they brought these characters together before and they know how to handle them going, going forward still. Absolutely. And we both said this watching the episode that... When Harley does get Harley, when Ivy gets to Arkham and she's into a cell, a little potted plant's waiting, but which shows how much her power levels and her actual character has developed over the years. Whereas 
these days, even that small potted plant would not have been allowed anywhere near her because she could have turned it into something terrific. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, her powers to bend plant matter has only grown a lot since then. But then again, I thought, sort of think that's a, an indication of where this story is in Batman's history. Mm-hmm. This is still the lady who just has an affinity and an obsession. She hasn't necessarily done all of those in, uh, experiments with chlorophyll and she hasn't really become one with the plant yet. Yes. So there's plenty of time for her to go through that transformation, maybe in the show, maybe not. Um, but still, it's good to show that the character is that consistent either way, that we can still see those tropes sort of shining through, even though the power set doesn't necessarily match up to what we know now, better mm-hmm. what we know then. Yes, absolutely. Now let's talk a little bit about, we've spoken about the villains, and obviously this is a Batman show, so we'll come to the Dark Knight in due course. But let's talk about the main character in this episode, other than Batman and the villains, and that's uh, D.A. Janet Van Dorm, obviously the lady who took over from Harvey Dent after the uh, villainous D.A. that got locked up recently, whose name I cannot remember. I know it was played brilliantly by um, a wonderful, wonderful cast. But this lady, um, we start off with her literally arguing the case that Batman is every bit as dangerous as the villains he looks up, arguing with Jim, arguing with Batman himself. But then we see real growth and development for a character we'd never see again, again, brilliantly made television. Yep, by making her the focus of the episode, we get to follow the change in thought process that would be natural for someone to go through this change of thought process to change their opinions and views about Batman. So we really see and really feel that there's a lot of doubt and a lot of uncertainty about how people view and how they think about Batman and a lot of people have come to me at least as a Batman fan with the argument of Batman does create his villains so having someone come into the episode with that opinion and having the episode structured around this character so that we can see this change of thought process it teaches us the viewer the way it should be and how it can be interpreted that way very well said very well said and as for Batman himself he honestly isn't that much of a presence only at the beginning and at the very end but when he comes into his own, oh. again, vintage Batman. I mean, because I knew that what straight jacket wouldn't hold him. And he was probably out of it by the time he sat down. But he wanted to play it through. He wanted to keep the situation calm. Because if he didn't play along, she could have been killed. Yep. Anything could have happened. All the orderlies, all the doctors in the facility could have been killed. He had to bide his time. And that's just wonderful Batman. Because when he does get out like we knew he would, he himself has grown from recent episodes. But... Let's give have your impression on Batman in this episode. I feel that Batman did play along with the sort of observing witness for all of those reasons to ensure her safety, mm-hmm. the peaceful resolution. He knew full well that the device he had left behind when he was captured would eventually lead back to him, so he knew that Jim and the cavalry would eventually arrive sooner or later. But I also think he wanted to test uh, Van Dyne's resolve. Mm. I think he wanted to see if she was a good enough DA to take over from the corrupt predecessor mm-hmm. and someone who is a bit more mentally stable than Harvey Dent was. Well, yeah. And I think she, seeing that she was put in this predicament where she has to find some justification for Batman's existence, if she could convince herself exactly. that Batman was worthwhile, then he wouldn't have another antagonistic force to have to get over. So he, he wanted her to go through those motions herself naturally so that they would come to a natural sort of agreement by the end of the episode. Absolutely. Well said. I could not have put that better myself. And Batman himself, when he does escape, 
in the darkness. Um, and everyone says, well, he, he's gone away. He, he, he's, he's gone. Um, he, and he's from the shadows in a moment that I will treasure forever, says, who says I'm leaving? <laughs> yeah, because why would he? It's, a, it's just a strong visual cue that shows Batman to consistently be in the point of power yeah. in the whatever situation he's in. We also can count on Batman to be just that figure of fear to bring it back down to these villains. And it's just so satisfying to see him just done so truly, even though a few seconds ago he was locked up on death's door, ready to be unmasked and executed. Yeah. The thing is, though, I don't believe he was. It's like we said earlier, he was playing for time and he still is now. He's waiting for Gordon and the cops to get there because when they all get there armed, there's less chance of the peasants revolting, so to speak, and surrendering. Whereas if it's just him, there could have been a loss of life. I think, again, he was stalling for time, taking the villains down while getting the police presence there. And I honestly do believe that. Yeah, he also very easily could have taken them all down in some fists of fury, but Mm -hmm. um, that would also have meant that the, shall we say, unnamed crazies would have become more dangerous somewhere in and around the rest of the facility. And there were a lot of them. So without that leadership, they would have just gone a bit rabid. They would have led us all sort of an attack on the orderlies with their being mind-controlled. So he needed to stall for time and give the main bad guys a bit of a merry chase until the cavalry swooped in. Well said. Well said. But I want to go back to an episode you reviewed with the lovely Sandy, Blind as a Bat. Hmm. Do you not feel Batman has already learned some lessons in the short time he's been Batman in this show? Whereas when he did escape, in total darkness, he's clearly got some night vision now. Because he wandered around, took out the bad guys in darkness where they could see nothing, and he could clearly see perfectly well. I think that might be that might be true. I feel like he may have that same night vision sort of like low light technology sort of mm-hmm. ingrained in his uh, cowl or whatever so yeah. that he could actually do that properly. I think maybe, or at the very least he sort of put up a refresher course on some of the stuff maybe after he was back with his old sensei in Japan off those yes. sort of episodes. Mm-hmm. He might actually have some other training or background in it or some way sort of leveled up his skills to borrow one of my own terms <laughs> so that he can be more competent in the dock, which is something I think is naturally and important for him to be able to do. Very well said. Yes, exactly. So again, even the main character can grow when he's not the main focus or figure in this episode. But in a way, actually, I should actually rethink that because hmm? even though he wasn't the main focus or had the most screen time, it was still all about him and how the world perceived him. So even when he's not the main focus, he's still the main focus. I feel that's true for every episode, to be yeah, honest. I absolutely. feel that, because um, even in episodes that are very centered on, like the last episode we just looked at, whereas Bullet of a Bullock, we saw him as the figure of hope that Bullock needed despite his own misgivings and mistrust. In episodes where it's those villains sitting around the table playing cards and yeah. bashing with rocks. Almost we, almost we see how they almost got him every single time. He can be absent for like mm-hmm. huge swathes of episodes and there can be times where we aren't sure if it's a real him like the other episode of Licked Out with Sandy with the robots. Yes. So it's natural and satisfying to see that even though he's not the main presence in an episode, he's still the main presence in a series. And a lot of the action and motions of the other characters and the events all center around him. Well said. Very good indeed. So now, 
Let's talk about Janet Van Dorn, a.k.a. the wonderful Stephanie Zimbalist. Now, listeners, if you're wondering, hey, I know that last name. Yes, you should. She's the daughter of Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., who plays Alfred on this very animated series. A incredible actress. Um, stage and screen records and history going back decades. A very well-celebrated lady, appearing in movies like as random and as varied as Magic of Lassie, The Awakening with Charlton Heston, mm-hmm. The Best Place to Be with Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., her father, um, The Man in the Brown Suit, Touched by an Angel. But most people will know her for playing the part of Laura Holt in the classic detective action comedy series Remington Steel, which launched the career of Pierce Brosnan. Oh, that guy. Yes, that guy. This was a great show, so obviously long before your time. This was oh. a show where she was a detective and one of the best in the business, but no one took her seriously because she's a woman. Yep, I was afraid of that. So she um, started the Remington Steel Agency. Now, Remington Steel is a razor blade. Yes, I was going to say. A cause... very manly thing. Uh-huh. And she hired Pierce Brosnan to play Remington Steel, the character. And that's where he went on to be Bond because of that portrayal and everything else. And it was a fun, fun show. But yeah, listeners, she's also the DA in Gotham City for a while. Who knew? Who knew? Honestly, they. I feel like the, the casting call was this was particularly easy. We need a uh, strong, determined uh, female character actor. Do we know anybody? And then just like the voice of Alfred just sort of went, um, I know. Poss- yes. Possibly, maybe. Yep. That'd be a, certainly an easy out. But then again, when the job is done this well, uh, who can fault it? Exactly. Well said. Again, a stellar, spot-on piece of casting. But would we expect anything less from Batman the Animated Series? Honestly, I don't know what else we could expect from Batman the Animated Series. I think the only time they've ever really thrown us at this point was odd opening sequences, which we have gladly been away from this episode. Yes, only one out of three so far. Into some very strange tonal changes at the beginning of the season when it first started. But a show finding its feet, we can easily forgive it. This show is always and consistently powerful and... That's why we love it, sir. Indeed, sir. And speaking of loving it, were there anything in this episode you didn't love? What were your main takeaways from the trial? I, I don't know about didn't love, but I think some things I wanted to point out were some of the details in either like art design or character design or uh, uh, the dialogue, I mm. want to say. Uh, I just wanted to see if I could pick your bat expert brain knowledge on this because I uh, drew, no, drew no things. Okay. There was a point where, during the questioning on the trial, there was a point where Joker was looking particularly bored and reading a, I think I wrote this down correctly, a Jimmy Levitz comic? Mm -hmm. Do you know that character at all? I know Paul Levitz, who was a very, very famous DC editor of his time, and one of the men who was instrumental in returning the Batman to his dark roots in the late 60s and early 70s after the 50s and 60s um Farago of Silver Age zaniness so I think that was a little tip of the hat to that Mr Levitz and maybe that uh, other name was a nickname that other creators had for him but mm. very well spotted um I knew he was reading something but I couldn't read that yeah I, I wanted to make, eyes I wanted to make an effort <laughs> to take that note down good the, job but the other thing I wanted to note down was um while Jim Gordon and Montoya were driving to try and locate Batman they he was using his device and said, oh, there's a ping out in the Somerset district because that's where Arkham is, apparently. Does that name resonate to you somewhat? Again, it's always something that's been in... The, there's always districts and areas and um, 
parts of Gotham. And the Somerset District is something I do remember them saying was where Gotham was based. But obviously, it's a tip of the hat to American history and that part of um, the world where New York has the Chesters and Chelsea and um, so many parts that are named after areas in the UK. So having a Somerset District is just perfectly, perfectly Gotham. I don't think it's named after any particular character or creator. Please, listeners, if I'm wrong, let me know. But for me, it's just that tip of the hat to say that New York, Gotham, same place. Yeah, it's just a um, very good design to show the, like, the colonial sort of history as it is. As it is. Exactly that. Okay, that's good. Yeah. And um, my main takeaways were A, Judge Joker, and B, that Harley was influencing the judge. Harley was judge. great in this. Yeah, I there was loved a lot of, she was a lot of fun, just being the high, high energy, highly chaotic self. And it was good that we got Joker as a surprise in this episode. Uh-huh. He was expected, yeah, but he was still a surprise. We got a lot of the initial action from these villains drawn on by uh, Thelma and Louise, as I like to call them. Yes, which was a pleasant surprise, and honestly, makes a lot of sense that they those two ladies were the ones sort of driving the force forward and bringing the action around and what a formidable duo they made i mean they brought the bat in yeah they did somehow um, again do you think that was a bit easy or again did he let himself be taken in because they had van dawn i think that yeah i think it's a possibility that he allowed himself to get caught in as easy a way as it was just so that he could ensure that the prisoner was found safely and the golden globe for best victim in a show goes to batman Batman. (laughs) Wonderful. wonderful So that's it. That was Trial by Paul Dini and Bruce Tim, directed by Dan Reber, and I loved it. Speaking of love, tell us about things you love, where you do, and where you do them, please. Okay, as you wish. I cover many bat-flavoured things by reviewing many titles a month on Dark Knight News. Catwoman and Suicide Squad are both in excellent spots right now, and the uh, currently ongoing Suicide Squad miniseries uh, Hunting for the Joker has been Ooh, an absolute yes, delight Joker. absolute delights but uh, for my one true love PC and tabletop gaming you can look no further than our Pride and Joy Fantastic Universes where I talk about the state of various battle royales and digital card games but you can also find me talking about those places on .gg and various other .gg media websites and for Dungeons and Dragons you can find me writing using around the TTRPG community and supplements for your own D&D games to level up your gameplay on the Apotheosis Studios blog. Talk to me on Twitter at IsItTinkerer and you can find my video work DMing Dungeons & Dragons games for No Ordinary Heroes on YouTube and my own PC gaming Let's Plays on The Hostile Atmosphere on YouTube. May all your roles be natural 20s. Wow. This wonderful show, alongside The Spinner Rack, and Harley Quinn, the animated podcast uh, Mad Love, can all be found on the DC Comics News feed. Uh, For my writing on DC Comics News and Dark Knight News, just search Steve J. Ray on your search engine of choice or Fantastic Universes for our site where we review everything. This show can be found on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google Play. Dark Knight News and DC Comics News can be found on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, YouTube, and Tinternet. Talk to me on Twitter at Elstevo, E-L underscore S-T-E-E-V-O. But until you do, here's Adam Ray. Here's the night. Together, we are the night. And this has been the I Am The Night podcast. Thank you for listening. And until next time, read more comics. And watch more Batman. <laughs> <laughs>